Good morning. You guys ready? Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. This is our Exodus series, The Way Out, Set Free, is the title of this weekend's message. In the land of the free and the home of the brave. Here's my question for you. I want you to ask uh, this question to the people sitting around you. How would most Americans define freedom? How would most Americans define freedom? Turn to the person next to you and ask that question. And then right after you ask that question, ask this, uh, ask this question, how would you define freedom? How would you define freedom? Real quick, do that. Oh my goodness, you made, us think, made me think too, too deep here. So what are you guys thinking? What, how do most Americans define freedom? Doing whatever you want to do? Yeah. So how would we define freedom? It's doing what we were created to do. It's right there on your notes. There's the answer. And you were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. Let me say that again. And you were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. The gospel is our declaration of dependence on God and his declaration of our freedom in him. The more we are dependent upon him, the more, <clears throat> the more we experience freedom in him. John eight thirty six, if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. You are free indeed. And in fact, whether you live in a third world or a first world country or live in a prison or a palace, you are never more free than when you are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. I don't care what anybody says, you're never more free than when you are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. John 8:36, if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Exclamation mark. Amazing. There's an amazing freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, Exodus is the book about the revelation of the God who makes himself known and the redemption he provides for his people. So the God who makes himself known is the God who redeems us. The word redemption or to redeem means to set free. And Exodus describes Israel's bondage in Egypt and the wonderful deliverance that God gave them. And it presents to us many, many pictures of our salvation through Christ. Now, let me ask you this. We, we talked about it last week. What triggers the series of 10 plagues coming down and striking Egypt? What is it? What triggers that? What triggers those 10 plagues that God sends upon Egypt? So it's Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's response to Moses. So Moses confronted Pharaoh and said, uh, this is from God, let my people go so they can worship me. And what did, uh, how did Pharaoh respond? Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Now in this service last, last week, William was sitting right over here and he said, he's gonna find out. <laughs> He's going to find out. I don't know if you guys heard him say that. It was in his service, but yeah, I cracked up. I thought it was really funny. But, uh, and guess what? Pharaoh found out. And in fact, we come now to the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back. But it also portrays the central message of biblical faith. It's, it's spectacular. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And the, the central message of biblical faith is the bloody death of an innocent victim in behalf of others. Life for God's people comes through death. Protection comes through provision. Salvation comes through substitution. 
And so we got work to do. There's a lot here. And um, before we read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again? God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. Show us wonderful things from your word through the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, search us, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious, restless thoughts. There's so many things in our heads, in our hearts. We struggle in so many different ways. So try us and know our anxious and restless thoughts and see if there be any grievous or sinful way in us. Reveal those sinful ways in our lives and then lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. In Jesus' holy and glorious name and everyone said, amen. amen. So uh, last week we just touched on uh, Exodus 11. We covered chapters 8 through 11 and Exodus 11, you can see there on your notes, announces the 10th plague, death of the firstborn. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 12. I'm only going to read the first 20 verses, so uh, I'll just maybe comment once because it, I want to, there's a lot here, and then we're going to go back to the notes and we'll unpack it. But Exodus chapter 12, you can follow along, verse 1, and um, this is really instruction to Moses about the Passover, Passover and this last plague that's going to hit Egypt and how the Israelites can be protected through this Passover feast and the feast of the unleavened bread. And this is what he describes here to them. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses in which, they, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days. Now he starts talking about, he's talked about the Passover feast. Now he's going to talk about the, the feast of unleavened bread. And so seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So they kind of, one goes right into the other. And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend. And um, if you keep your Bibles open just for a minute, so, so as you work through that, this text, so this is God's instruction to Moses that will exempt the Israelites from this plague, the 10th plague. Verses 21 through 28, Moses passes on these instructions to the people who, who obey. So he goes and talks to them about this. They obey. They follow through with that. Exodus 29 through 32, you see the 10th plague takes place. And I just wanted to read verse 30 if you have your Bibles there. I mean, this is devastating to the Egyptians. It says in verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So when you think of firstborn, sometimes you think of someone's little, small, little baby. But no, this is firstborn. These are adults. These are people throughout this nation that are devastated by loss. And so there's a lot of weeping, and yet Israel is saved. There's an interesting contrast here. Destruction versus almost there's a celebration. It's a feast. They're feasting. And that's the distinction that God makes for us as, as followers of Christ and then, uh, and then verses 30, 33 through 42, you have the exodus. So immediately, you know, Pharaoh goes, oh, man, get out of here right away. This is the, this is the straw that breaks uh, Pharaoh's back. And he says, get, hit the road. And then in verses 43 through 51 of chapter 12, you have the institution of the Passover. And so, okay, so what in the world does all of this mean? How do you apply this to our lives? And I'm glad you asked because I'm going to help you apply it to your life right here. And this is what it's talking about. It's talking about redemption, set free. So God's work of redemption, he sets us free. Freedom gives us, and there's going to be five characteristics we'll look at. I could have given you 25, but I was going to be easy on you this morning. Is there ever a time I'm easy on you? Not, not typically, but I, I will be easy here this uh, weekend. But, uh, but let me give you five characteristics. And the Passover feast was a foreshadowing of Christ's atoning work on the cross. You guys know that. This is a picture, a vivid picture. 
I mean, think about it. When they put the blood on the doorposts, lentil doorposts, what does that represent? Boom, boom, cross, pointing to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Every bit of it, Colossians 2, 16 through 17 makes that very clear. These are all happening sequentially, these characteristics, not sequentially, but simultaneously, instantaneously upon faith in Christ. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, by grace are you saved through faith in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, these are ours. This is what we can experience in our lives. Here's the first one, a new future. So God's work of redemption gives us a new future. Look at verses one and two of our text. We'll go back to a text. Keep, our, uh, keep your Bibles open. So Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of new months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So they had been a slave people for 400 years, and now God is changing all of that. The Passover was to mark the end of life as they knew it in Egypt and the beginning of a brand new life marked by a whole new calendar year. So he's just saying, hey, here's a brand new year for you. Things are beginning, and they're changing, and you have a new future, a new beginning. And it began in March or April, the, the very first of spring. So here, here's the application to us. Have you ever wanted to have a new beginning or to leave the past behind? Yes. I think all of us. Have you ever hoped that you wouldn't be defined for the rest of your life by something that you had done in the past or something that had been done to you in the past? Yes, we wanted to leave those things behind. Have you ever wanted to not carry the baggage of, of the past hurts, habits, and hang-ups into the future, which we inevitably do if we don't deal with those things? And so regardless of what you have done or what has been done to you, the Christian life is about a new beginning, a new start, a new future. And it's not once and done. It's like every day. Okay, does that make sense? Because what this means, it doesn't mean that you doesn't mean that you are, are sinless, though you may sin less, and, and you should over time because you're walking in the reality of what he's provided for you. But, but the thing is, and here's the reality, is that there is no sin or suffering that is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace, period. That's it. That's what this is saying. Okay, yeah, but Pastor Ray, I blew it this week. Okay, get back up. Come on. You got a new beginning ahead of you. You have a new future. You always have a new future in Christ, regardless of how things went down this last week, whatever struggle you've been in. And that's the point that he's making. And this is a big point. Now, this is really about, uh, this is about living a hope-filled life. So when you think of a new future, you're thinking of a hope-filled life with a sense of anticipation about the future. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, though we grieve... We do not grieve as the world grieves, because why? Because we have hope. So do we grieve like the world grieves? Yeah, yeah, we take hits, but we don't grieve like the world grieves. Why is that? What should separate you from unbelievers when you go through, which you will go through, you will go through suffering, you will go through difficulties. What should distinguish you from, from unbelievers is that you have an undercurrent of hope that there's something about your trust in Christ. You know that he's got your life in his hands. 
You know that he's gonna take care of you. So we grieve, but we don't grieve as the world grieves because we have hope. It doesn't deny reality, it defies reality. There is a hope that doesn't deny reality, but it defies reality. I get around people from time to time that are in denial of reality, and they call it Christian, Christian life. It's really messed up, and it's, it's really traumatizing to them because they're not actually really dealing with the reality that's in front of them. So we're not talking about denial of reality. You're gonna grieve, but you're gonna have hope in that grief, and that's healthy. Those are happening simultaneously. That in my grief, there's a hope. And that's healthy. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's a number of things it means. Uh, I, I gave you some verses here, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, those that are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. <laughs> Do you understand what that means? I mean, it's like, I'm a new creature. I have new privileges. I have new potential. I have a new power in Jesus Christ. Now, whether I utilize those new privileges and power and, and, and potential, it's up to me as I walk with him. But that's what that means. Those that are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Jeremiah 29, 11, many of you have memorized that verse. You guys know what that means? You know what that verse says? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. In fact, that's, that might be for a few folks here this morning. You are feeling hopeless. And the Lord would say to you, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. I want to fill your heart, your heart with hope. Yes, I know you're, you're in a dire place, a desperate place. In fact, he wrote that to a group of people, the Israelites, who were who were behind enemy lines, so to speak. They, were, they were, had been taken from their homeland and taken off into a foreign country. They're not even in their own homes. And he's saying, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, regardless of how desperate your life may be. There's hope, there's hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 through 30. I'm not gonna read those verses. You're probably familiar with Romans 8, 28. What is that verse? For we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Let me give you three, uh, kind of three statements that I've taught you in the past about those verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is what it means. So this, is, this would be the hope that he wants to give us, a new future. So this is the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. When I put my faith in Jesus, I have this new future, and this is what it means. My bad things will work out for my good, regardless of how bad they might be. They're gonna work for my good. I don't know how he's gonna do it. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense. God just looks pretty horrible. I don't know how you're gonna do it, but I believe you're gonna do it because you're powerful and you're sovereign. Even over my bad circumstances, and you're going to work them for my good and your glory. But here's the second thing it means. Not only are my bad things going to work for my good, but my truly good things can never be taken from me. What are those? My good things that can never be taken from me? The wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his child. He will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. That can never be taken from you. So you will always have enough for whatever you're facing in life. That's what that means. Oh, and the third thing, so my bad things will work out for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me. And the best things are yet to come. What does that mean? Well, that means that one of these days, see this dude up here? One of these days, I'm gonna take my last breath on earth and my first breath in heaven. 
and see my Savior face to face, and I will look back on all of this stuff in this life, and it will be light and momentary compared to the glory that I will experience with him. That's what that means. The best is yet to come. Isn't that wonderful, what we have in him? And so it's just, it's absolutely spectacular. That's what we should live with is that sense of hope. A sense of hope. And I've got to be honest, there's times, more than I would like to admit, I just felt hopeless. I just felt, oh my goodness. And maybe you're feeling like that this morning. Maybe it's your marriage or your finances or your job. Or it's like, oh my goodness, it's beating me down. I feel hopeless. I feel totally hopeless. Let me read to you a story here that I think kind of illustrates this uh, for us. Imagine you have two women of the same age, the same socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them and say to each, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else, and I want you to do that over and over for eight hours a day. You put them, you put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one one, one difference. You tell the first woman that at the end of the year, you will uh, pay her $30,000. And you tell the second woman that at the end of the year, you will pay her $30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first woman will be saying, isn't this boring? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman will say, no. This is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. What is going on here? What is going on in that story? In this story, you have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It is their expectation of the future. So God wants to fill you with an expectation about the future. In fact, uh, you've got to know this. Hope in the Bible, hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking, but it's confident, joyful expectation in the person and promises of Christ Jesus. That's it. And so redemption means that. In fact, that that might be where you are this morning. There are times in my life... uh, I mean, I pray and I say, God, I feel hopeless. Fill me with your hope. Give me a sense of that joyful, confident expectation. Because you don't want me to live without that. I need that. I am not going to be able to go on without it. And that might be your prayer this morning. I pray that God will give that to you. Before we finish up this morning, when we take communion, I pray that he'll pour that hope into you and give you that confidence that you need. So redemption gives you a new future and it gives you a new family, new family. New community. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, uh, tell all the congregation, that's a key word there, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, and there's another key word for household, households, congregation, and if the household is too small for a lamb, look at, listen to what he says here, then he and his nearest neighbor... So you got neighbor there, drawing the neighbor in. Shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your lamb, 
your count for the lamb. So he says, tell the congregation, verse three, tell the congregation, the word occurs more than 100 times in the books of Exodus through Joshua. It is a common word. This is the first time it occurs in Exodus. The word congregation is interesting and significant because it has not occurred yet in Exodus. And so the people have been called the Hebrews or the sons of Israel, Israel being another name for Jacob, the patriarch, their ancestor, but they have not yet been called a congregation, a community. And so God is giving them this new identity as a new nation, a new people, a new future. They're no longer simply Hebrews, an ethnic group, no longer just the sons of Israel, descendants of a great patriarch, but they're now a community, a congregation, shaped by, by this common experience, redemption, moving in a common direction, the promised land. That's pretty significant. And, and also, the last of verse 3 into verse 4 that idea of sharing your lamb, the idea was to have one lamb per household. If you didn't have enough for that, or you had too much, then you were going to join with a couple of other neighbors and have one lamb. So it was about community. How does that apply to us? Here's what it, this is how it applies to us. Ephesians 2, verse 19. I'm not gonna read all those verses. I'll just read verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So when you put your faith in Jesus, not only do you have a, a new future simultaneously, but you have a new family. You're part of a, the family of God. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all, in all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day drawing near. How many of you have ever seen those National Geographic films or maybe I've been watching here lately from BBC, the Planet Earth. Have you ever seen those, those films? Those are amazing, aren't they? It's just crazy. I noticed the Planet Earth will never show you a lion devouring an antelope, so to speak, or anything like that. They don't actually show you any of the killing. At least I haven't seen any of it. But some of the more National Geographic, they actually will show you some of that stuff. But I remember watching National Geographic film where you had this herd of uh, antelope kind of running through a field and then they stopped to graze for a little bit. It was almost as if the, the, the guy with the camera kind of zoomed over to the grass, and you go, why did he take it off the herd? He's looking at the grass. It just looks like grass. And then, well, it's more than grass, because then he zooms in, and what's in the grass? A lion. A lion is in the grass waiting to come after the, the antelope. And he, the lion won't attack the herd, but waits for a, a stray, one that's weak, one that begins to get away from the herd. And then, if you've ever seen a, a lion on an antelope, it's horrible, devouring, destroying, taking that antelope down. The Bible tells us that in 1 Peter 5, 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now listen to me. You need community whether you think you need it or not. And if you don't think you need it, it's because you've bought into the lie that's so predominant in our culture today. There's two big lies in our culture today that keeps people out of church. One is this attitude of independence. I don't need anybody. I can be a Christian without going to church. Well, 
not a good Christian, not a healthy Christian. Maybe you can be a Christian, but you're not going to last very long because you're going to be devoured. I'm telling you, you're going to be devoured. I've seen it too often. People that think that they can do it on their own, that attitude of independence makes them pray to our adversary who is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it is ugly. There's another attitude that's uh, predominant, not just independence. Okay, if I have to go to church, then it's anonymity. I'll just show up and I'll just kind of check the box and I'll just hide out and I don't want anybody to know when I'm here and when I'm, when I'm not here. I just, I just want to just hide. Well, that kind of misses the whole point, doesn't it? Community, where you're just kind of hiding out and, and, I, and I see that, I see that a lot. You need to have people in your life that when you're not coming to church, it needs to be more than just a weekend service because you're going to drop through the cracks here. But you need to be connected in a small group. We call them life groups here to where if they don't see you in a few weeks, they, they call you up. And they say, hey, man, we haven't seen you. Yeah, those people over there at Desert Breeze, they're mean. And you know what? I don't think they like me. And I don't like them. Give me two good reasons why I need to go back to Desert Breeze. Well, well, first of all, because those people really do like you. And secondly, because you're the pastor. <laughs> and they miss your dumb jokes. Okay, sorry. I had to say that. And so you got to have people in your life. That, uh, that call you on, on things. They're like, hey, where have you been? And why are you going there? And why are you watching that? And hey, get out of my life. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Ah, you need to have people telling you what to do. You really do. The Bible calls that community. It's really healthy. It's really strong. It's really helpful. Man, when you start isolating yourself, it's just, it's not a good thing. There is, there, by the way, I was telling that story about the, the whole antelope uh, a herd of antelope running through a field. I was telling that in one of our Game of Lives, and I didn't say antelope. I said, have you ever seen, and I was trying to get real serious here and make it really like a serious uh, story. I said, have you ever seen a herd of cantaloupe running through a field? <laughs> and I continued on with the story, not realizing I had said cantaloupe instead of antelope, and somebody raised their hand, and they said, we've never seen a herd of cantaloupe running through a field. <laughs> kind of blew that story. There is no way that you will ever be able to grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in a community of other believers. Knowing the God of the Bible can't be achieved by yourself. Your Christian friends see parts of Jesus Christ that you will never know or love unless you know and love them. Adam wasn't lonely because, because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. Genesis 2.18, it says, it is not good for man to be what? alone. That's before the fall. That's before the fall. So, so Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The need for friends is not the result of sin or living in a fallen world. But now that we live in a fallen world, oh my goodness, that just exacerbates our issue and our problem. We need friends even that much more. We need to connect deeply with others. And that's why he's doing what he's doing here. So we need a new future. We need a new family. By the way, let me just say this. I, 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 I need to say this. One of the reasons why we isolate, and I understand, I understand why we don't want to get connected in independence, we're rugged individualism and, and anonymity. I'll just hide out. It's because of shame, actually. And shame comes from sin. We just don't want people to 
See, see the enemy is going to do this. He's going to try to get you to feel like you're all alone and nobody understands. And, and if people did get to know you, they're not going to like you. And that's a lie. That's a lie. And when you understand the grace of God, then you're not so filled up with shame. And then you can be transparent. You can be authentic. You don't care what they know about you. Because the only eyes in the universe that matter loves you, adores you. That's why. And then you're, you're able to be open up. Okay, I, I needed to say that because this, it goes right in, line, right in line along with this next one. So new future, new family, new forgiveness, new forgiveness. This is redemption. This is what happens instantaneously. Bam, as soon as I put my faith in Jesus, this is what it's just demonstrating for us. This is what it's telling us. So new forgiveness. Look at verses five through seven. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Do you hear what he's saying here? The 14th day of this month? When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, check this out. Everybody look up here. This is what they were supposed to do. They're going to go out and pick out a lamb and bring that lamb into their home for 14 days. You know what that means? You bring a home, you bring a lamb into your home and the kids are going to connect to that lamb. They're going to play with that lamb. Oh, that beautiful little lamb, oh, so sweet, 14th day, you take it out and butcher it, and then eat it, that's what he's saying here, now, how many have pets, how many here have pets, show of hands, pets, imagine taking your most loved pet, to take him out back and butcher that pet, well, I'm not going to say eat that pet because it's a little different here, but uh, that's a little gross. But you take that pet and butcher that for your sins. Your pet dies for your sins. I mean, I could see doing that with a cat, but not a dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was bad. That was bad. I, I, please forgive me. Whoop, we had six cat lovers just walk out just right there. I'm sorry. That was, that was just a, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that because I know there's a lot of you that really love your cats, but they're not going to be in heaven. They're demonic, okay? They are. I'm sorry. Bring your cats to church next weekend. We will cast the demons out of them. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Please, no cats. I think I'm allergic anyway. Sorry. So imagine that. I mean, that's what's, so here's what's, here's what's happening. Why would you bring a lamb into your home for 14 days? And then you take it out and you, and you, you kill this lamb and, and this lamb dies for your sins and it breaks your heart. Because our sin, when we sin, we don't, when we sin against God, we're not just breaking some arbitrary rules. We're breaking the heart of God and that's what he wanted them to understand. That we break his heart when we break his laws, when we break his rules, because that's how much he loves us. He says, in my wisdom, in my infinite wisdom and perfect love for you, this is how I want you to live. And when we go, I am smarter than you, I know better than you, it breaks his heart. Because we don't break his law, we break ourselves against his law because this is his order that he's established and then it just creates all sorts of chaos in our life. It's, it's destructive. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 6.23. 
So new forgiveness. He gives us a new forgiveness. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. I, I kind of went too long on that one, but let me see if I can get through this, this point. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two door frames. This is verse 7. The doorpost and the lintel of the houses and the blood shall be a sign. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's so moving for me. When I was reading it, I just like, oh my goodness. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's what that represents. See, you can't live in Egypt for 400 years and not start adopting some of the culture and their gods. So they had sin to be forgiven. They needed to be saved from the destroyer. And they had a plague that would, would fall on them unless, unless they had a sacrifice, a costly lamb, a yearling in the prime of its life. Jesus was in the prime of his life, 33 years old. A male without blemish. Jesus was without blemish. He was, he was sinless. Something valuable. Yes, Jesus, the Son of God, infinitely, eternally valuable. The blood is a sign for them, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. It was a public sign, an assurance, a visceral reminder to them. It was a sign and a seal testifying to them that life will come through death. We will live tonight because something has died in our place. We will be safe because of blood. The blood was there to testify that their guilt would be taken away. Their guilt would be taken away. The the theological term for that is expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, expiation. Our guilt is taken away. It was also there to testify, that is the blood was there to testify that the wrath of God would be turned away. That's called propitiation. Propitiation. It would be expunged or removed and God would be made propitious, meaning pro them, uh, for them, on their sides. And, and all of this is a foreshadowing of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, whose blood would cover the sins of those who believe in him, causing God's judgment to pass over them. John 1.29, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, Peter writes, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life that was passed on to you by your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so they're all talking about this Passover and how the Passover is a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate exodus through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, so this is what this means, this new forgiveness, and why we have a hard time connecting with others, and if I'm not living in the reality of this new forgiveness, I'm not going to connect deeply with others, and it's because I'm not remembering Romans 8.1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. This is what this means, that he will never, ever, 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 ever hold your sin against you, past, present, and future. He will never hold that sin against you. It's been taken care of. And we don't live in the reality of that. I made, uh, here's eight statements of what it looks like when we don't live in the reality. If I really believed that my sins would never be held against me, this is actually statements about what it would look like if I believed that, I'm justified in God's eyes. This is what that means. So 
if I really believed that my sins would never be held against me, this is what it would look like in my life. See if any of these resonate with you. Number one, I would never be defensive when confronted. Why would I be defensive? My sins are all taken away. I, that's how I came to faith in Christ was I admitted my sin, so confront me. Bring your list. Is that as, as long as you got? Because I got a longer one. In fact, he's got even a longer one that he's already wiped out, but I'm cool with that. Bring your list. I'll add it to mine. So you're not going to be defensive. Here's number two. I would be quick to confess and take responsibility for my sins and not blame shift. Does that make sense? If I really believe that he'll never hold my sins against me, how about this one? I would be quicker. I would be a quicker forgiver of others who have offended me or, or who have hurt me, and I would do that out of the overflow of his forgiveness of me because when you understand how much he's forgiven you, whatever you have to forgive others is small in comparison to what he's already done for you. And so our unforgiveness towards others is rooted in the fact that we don't understand how much he's, he's forgiven us. Number four, I would be going to drastic measures to overcome my sins with God's presence and power in my life. In other words, yeah, I know that I'm going to continue to sin. He's already forgiven me, but man, I don't want to, and I want to honor him with my life. So I'm going to do everything I can to overcome those sins so that I can honor him and live for his glory. I'm going to still struggle, but when I do, I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to run right back into his arms because he loves me. Number five, I would see my sin not so much as breaking God's laws, but breaking God's heart. As we already said. Number six, I would be free from the relentless pressure to prove myself because I am already proven and secure in Christ. I'm not living to justify myself. I'm living because I'm justified in Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm living out of an abundance of security and significance in him. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. Okay, they talk smack about me. They don't like me. Whatever. Listen, if you have his approval, you can handle the disapproval of the whole world. It's absolutely amazing. But see, that's, that's living in the reality of, of his forgiveness of us. Number seven, I wouldn't be inflated by success or deflated by failure. What's a couple gold medals when I have him? I mean, it's, it's a great accomplishment. Woo Nothing compared to what we have in him. Really, if you, if you really understand what we have in him and, and our forgiveness and our right standing with him and being justified in God's eyes. And then here's number eight. I wouldn't see suffering as punitive, but as purifying. I don't know how many times I come across people and they're Christians and they'll say, oh my goodness, I'm going such, through hard times. Is God punishing me? And I'll say, are you a Christian? Yes. No, he's not punishing you. No. He already punished Jesus for you in your behalf. Why would he punish you? He's not punishing you. You don't ever see suffering as punitive. That was all placed on Jesus. Now, purifying, that's another thing. It purifies us, and he disciplines us as a father disciplines his son. And that's part of that. Okay, okay. You guys are getting me all amped up here. <laughs> or it's not, not you guys, it's this text, man. This is like, I'm needing this stuff this morning. I'm preaching to myself as I do every week. And so God, help me, help me. I pray that this stuff would go deep into our hearts. New future, new family, new forgiveness, and then a new feast, a new feast. 8 through 14. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened. It sounds like roasted on the fire. Sounds like a barbecue to me. I'm loving it. Yes, this is good stuff with unleavened bread. Leaven speaks of sin throughout Scripture. And then it says with bitter herbs, reminder of their bitter life of enslavement. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, and your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, 
and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. That's justification for fast food. Yes. <laughs> eat in haste. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast. He keeps using that over and over again, feast, 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 to the to the Lord, that's also a key word, Memorial Day, throughout your generations. Do this throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. It's really quite interesting when you study in Luke 22, uh, 7 through 23, Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples. And when Jesus stands up, there are two enormous shocks that the disciples experience. And the first one is that when Jesus stands up to begin to speak, at the Passover meal, there was a presider, and his job is to stand up and explain the meal. And so Jesus Christ gets up, and they, expect, they, expected, him, uh, they expected to hear him say, this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so we could be free. But instead, he gets up and he says, this bread is my body. And they're like, what? What is this about? What he's saying is that this bread is my affliction. I am going to suffer to give you the ultimate freedom, the ultimate exodus. Freedom not just from physical and political and economic bondage, but from sin and death itself. And that, that was the first shock. Here's the second shock that they, they got that night, is that when he stood up, the disciples looked down, and there are three things you have at a Passover meal. You have the unleavened bread, and then you have the four cups of wine, and then you have a lamb. And they looked down, and they saw the four cups of wine. They saw the unleavened bread, but there was no lamb. There was no lamb? I thought this was a Passover meal. There was no lamb. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was sitting at the table. And the lamb was deliberately removed from the Passover meal because Jesus Christ is saying, tonight I am the lamb. My death is the central event to which all the history of God's relationship to the world has been moving. Tonight I am giving you the ultimate salvation, the ultimate exodus. And even Moses, Moses understood that Passover feast was more about our freedom from our sin debt to God than anything else. And so the feast of Passover and unleavened bread are feast. They're to be a memorial days uh, for us. That is, when we take communion, and, and in essence, it's telling us that salvation is, is a feast. Salvation is about feasting on Christ. In fact, the word memorial means reminder or remembrance. The word feast literally means to celebrate or to dance. Salvation is a feast. It's, it's not just subjective and legal, but subjective and experiential. There's an interesting place in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the multitudes, he feeds the 5,000, and then it's almost as if like him and the disciples are kind of trying to ditch all the people, and so they kind of hop in a boat and go to the other side and try to get away from them, and the people just continue to come around him, and yet Jesus knows their hearts and knows that they're only coming to get from him another meal. They're only trying to get another meal from him. They're coming to use him rather than to actually be with him, and he makes a distinction. He kind of draws the line in the sand in that. He understands that. I'm not just a meal ticket. I want you to know me. And he says something, he says something there that's uh, in that chapter. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. And it actually says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
And Peter says very profound words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So what did, what did he mean by that? Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. I know that Roman Catholicism actually teaches uh, transubstantiation, that the elements actually turn into the flesh and blood of Jesus, which we don't believe that. We believe that what is he he's talking about here? He's talking about feasting on on Christ, on the gospel, and digesting it and making it every part of your life. That the Christian life is more than an agreement of facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. It's a, it's a deep satisfaction in Christ that nothing else in this world can satisfy. It's a feast. It's a celebration that you begin to find in him that he's more desirable and more satisfying than all that life can give or, or death could ever take away from you. But there's a feasting that when you come to church, and we're going to take communion in a little bit, when you take communion, you're, you, there's almost this, this reflecting and thinking deeply until it gets a hold of your heart. I was thinking of these words where when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, Beholding the glory of God, we are being transformed. When we behold him, the word behold means to not just look at something, but for something to hold your gaze and attention. You treasure it. You assess its value to you. You reflect on it, on its glory and beauty until your heart rests in it. You taste it, and you're satisfied with it. Jesus becomes more real to you during those times and, and bigger than any trial and better than any temptation. That's why it says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Bible uses a lot of sensory language and compares the Christian life to like feasting. There should be a kind of a feasting that takes place when we gather together. We're diving into his word. We're eating and we're nourishing ourselves. It tells us in Psalm 37, uh, 7 through, uh, I think 7 through 8, it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 63, 3 through 5, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you. As long as I live, in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So salvation isn't, like I said, just an agreement with facts on the head. It's an, it's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all appetites. And there's this feasting. Oh, my goodness. You love reading his word. You love spending time with him in prayer because you're connecting with the the God of the galaxies, and you're taking in the gospel, and it's digesting, and you're making it a part of every aspect of your life. And so, the new future, new family, new forgiveness, new feast, celebration, and new freedom. And he talks a lot about this unleavened bread. Once again, leaven is, is sin, and you see that in verses 15 through 20. To get rid of the leaven, get rid of the leaven. What does that mean? A little leaven leavens the whole bunch. He just says a little bit of sin in your life will infiltrate your life and bring your life down ultimately. And it'll puff you up, make you proud, think you don't need God or need community, and you kind of go your way until it brings its devastation. So what is this? How do we overcome? How do we deal with the leaven in our lives, the sin, particularly as we take communion here today? Here's what you need to understand is that sin offers a promise of happiness. 
Nobody sins out of duty. We sin because we think we're going to be happier. Did you know that? We, we take a path that's outside of God's directives because we, th- we are convinced we're going to be happy. And in the meantime, we're trampling on his heart. We're breaking his heart. And we think, we believe the lie we're going to be happy. And so sin offers a promise of happiness. No one sins out of duty. We sin because we believe the lie that we will be happier. But sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with Christ. And this is how you break the power of sin. This is how you get rid of the leaven in your life, is that the power of sin's promise, the desires of the flesh, is broken by the power of God's promise, walking by the Spirit. Those are the verses I gave you there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, 16, and then 22 through 23. And of course, the result of that will be the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Satisfaction in Christ that nothing in this world can give you. The power of sin's promise. So, okay, you're struggling with something in your life. You have a habit in your life. How do you overcome that? What's holiness? Holiness is being so satisfied in Christ that sin loses its appeal. Then when someone offers you that, you go, are you kidding me? I've got him. Why do I want to chase that? When I have him, he satisfies me. That's how you get rid of the leaven. That's how you work on the leaven. That's how you rid yourself of all of that. I love what Jonathan Edwards says in, in a sermon. It's uh, back in 1734, Youth and Pleasure of Piety. Youth and Pleasure of Piety. This is what he says. There is a powerful vice grip that sin exercises on the human heart that mere shouts of denunciation and religious scolding and the intimidation of church authorities cannot dislodge. The promise and allure of sinful gratification must be countered, must be overcome by the promise and allure of gratification in God that is sweeter and more beautiful and more exquisite and more satisfying. The pursuit of God brings delights of a more sublime nature, pleasures that are more solid and substantial, vastly sweet sweeter, more exquisitely delighting, and of a more satisfying nature that exceed the pleasures of the vain sensual youth as much as gold and pearls exceed dirt and dung. Woo! Freedom isn't doing whatever you want to do. It is doing what you were created to do, and you were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory, and to the degree you enjoy the riches of God's glory is to the degree that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Father God, thank you for revealing yourself to us and redeeming us through the indispensable and costly work of Christ on the cross for us that this Passover feast points to, giving us a new future, a new family, a new forgiveness, a new feast, a new freedom. And as we take communion now, make these truths real to our hearts, transforming every part of our lives for your glory and our joy. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.